We're in a, a series, The King Dreams is the next in our Daniel's story. And you might know that that's, uh, that's Daniel 2. Anybody read Daniel 2 before? Okay. This is probably not a new subject for you, and you might be wondering what it has to do with communion. We'll get to that. Don't worry. Um, but to begin with, I need to read you an article by a young lady. This was written on Sunday, not quite a week ago. A young lady who has, uh, is just at the end of two doctorate degrees that she's taking from two different universities in Kabul. She says this, early on Sunday morning, I was heading to university for a class when a group of women came running out from the women's dormitory. I asked what had happened, and one of them told me the police were evacuating them because the Taliban had arrived in Kabul, and they would, will beat women who do not have a burqa. We all wanted to get home, but we couldn't use public transport. The drivers wouldn't let us in their cars because they didn't want to take responsibility for transporting a woman. Hmm. The, the um, women in the dormitory had it worse off because they didn't have a place to go. Um, they, they weren't from Kabul, and so they weren't sure what to do. Um, meanwhile, the men standing around were making fun of the girls and women, laughing at our terror. Go put on a chadari or, or a burqa, one called out. It's your last days of being out on the streets, said another. I'll marry four of you in one day, said a third. You know, when, when we look at big picture stuff, like the, the stuff that's happening in Afghanistan over the last two weeks, uh, we're easily, um, I guess, obscured from the, the, the nuanced experiences of the people that are in those uh, big picture stories. And today in Daniel chapter 2, we're looking at a big picture story. But what we don't want to do and what the Bible won't let us do is ignore the details of the individuals in that story. And, and I think what we'll find is that you and I are in that story. It's impossible not to be when you have a story that goes from Daniel's time to the time of Jesus' second coming. We're somewhere in the middle of that. And our story matters just like the big picture story matters as well. So let's pick up the story of Daniel, and, uh, and let's read from Daniel chapter 2. And we're going to get chunks of this because it's a story. And so let's just read the story and let the Bible tell it. I enjoy the New Living Translation when I'm reading stories. Um, I, I like to compare translations among themselves, but this is a, a fun one when you're reading a story because it flows real nicely. And we'll read the first few verses here. One night, during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. He called in his magicians, his enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, I've had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, Long live the king. Tell us a dream, and we'll tell you what it means." But the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you'll be torn limb from limb and your houses will be burned into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I'll give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. They said again, please, your majesty, tell us the dream and we will tell you what it means. The king replied, I, I know what you're trying to do. You're stalling for time because you know I'm, I'm serious when I say if you don't tell me the dream, you're doomed. So you've conspired to tell me lies, hoping I will change, change my mind. But tell me the dream, and then I'll know that you can tell me what it means. 
The astrologers replied to the king, No one on earth can tell the king his dream. And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they don't live here among people. The king was furious when he heard this, and he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. The king had a dream. It's a disturbing dream. Something is different. This is not the result of the falafel he ate last night. It has nothing to do with the opium he often takes to go to bed because, no, he hadn't taken any to go to bed that night. It wasn't a hallucination. This was a divine, supernatural intervention. Something, someone had given him a dream. Now, I, I suspect and I might get this a little bit from Ralph in his book, Zuriel. <laughs> but I suspect that Satan had a part in this. He knew that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And, and was Nebuchadnezzar God's guy or Satan guy, Satan's guy at this time? He's, he's more Satan's guy than anything. God's using him, but he has not given his heart to God. And so he is, uh, he, he's woken up. Satan knows there's something going on, and he knows that he doesn't want Nebuchadnezzar to know whatever this the interpretation of this dream is. And so maybe he makes him forget. Maybe he, he makes him, in his pride or arrogance, um, want to, to, to force these guys into, uh, into telling him the dream. I don't know what, but Satan's probably got a hand in this. And Satan's goal seems to be accomplished when they can't tell him the dream and he orders all the wise men to be killed. Daniel, of course, and his friends were in training at this point. It's the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And it was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign that Daniel was taken captive. So this is just a few months into their training when Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. They're not part of the wise men yet. They're still in training. But they are part of the wise men because the executioner is sent to Daniel's um, room as well. And I'm thinking maybe, maybe Satan wants whatever happens here in this courtroom to wipe Daniel out of the story. He's no longer in the picture. He can't have any influence over the king. So in Daniel 2, verse 14, we find the next part. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. He asked Arioch, what has the king issued, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? So Arioch told him all that had happened. Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. Then Daniel went home and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, what had happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show him his mercy by telling him the secret, so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. And when you read the next few verses, you find that Daniel was praising the God of heaven because he'd just seen the dream. And he was excited and he was amazed. This is the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ever-living one, the one who reveals secrets and tells the future. This is the praise that Daniel had of the God of heaven. And it's really important, these, these words that he says. He says, this is the God, the one who has all wisdom and power, who sets up kings and takes them down, and who reveals mysteries. We're about to get this big global picture, this, this uh, universal impact kind of story. 
And, and what I want to do is make sure that we keep the individual's experience in mind as well. Because just for our own application, is the, the story of this big metal man significant except for the people that are affected by the story? Is it, a, is it just a parable or is it something that impacts people? If it impacts people, then that individual experience is important. It's important to God. Think about Daniel. Daniel's just been through this uh, difficult uh, transition. He's been ripped up from his home. He's had to um, be force-fed this new culture. Uh, just recently, not very many months ago, he was in the, the, the dining room and had to talk to the Melzor about what food that they would eat. And he was afraid that he might be killed and, and this is not a happy experience, but the, the God takes him through that and provides for him and gives him favor with, with Melzor, and so everything's good there. But, but now the king has a dream, and he's facing the literal executioner, not figuratively, but the literal executioner. Can you imagine the, the emotional experience that Daniel goes through? Uh, I'm sure surprise as he sees um, Arioch standing there and telling him these things, fear, what's going to happen next? Um, gratitude maybe that he gave him an opportunity to see the king and the king gave him some time, determination to find this, this answer because he goes and he prays and he asks his, his friends to pray with him. Peace as he prays. He goes to sleep. Can you sleep unless you're at peace? He goes to sleep in peace, resting in God's plan, whatever that might be. And then he has the dream and, and he's filled with joy and he praises God. That experience of Daniel is, well, it can be, I should say, our experience too. When we go through challenges, when we face problems, what do we do with them? Um, how old was Daniel? This is 604, maybe 603 B.C. Um, Daniel was taken as a young man. He's probably not more than 20, maybe 17 or 18. Uh, just curious, any young people between the 17 and 25 range, yeah? How would you feel facing an executioner, and what would you do? You see that Daniel faces, the Bible says, with wisdom and discretion, and, and, uh, and he responds with surrender and with prayer, and God reveals something to him. And this tells me something about our young people. Is there anybody too young for God to use in His service? No. It's never too early to give your heart to Jesus and let Him take control of your life. What direction your life takes ideally is God's decision. And, and the Bible says that all things work together for good to those who love God or fear God in some translations and to those who are called according to His purpose. Was Daniel called according to God's purpose? God had a plan, and that is the best place to be. You can face the executioner and not be afraid when you know you're in God's plan. There's one uh, old-time preacher from the, the early 1800s who, who once said that uh, he was indestructible, invincible, until God was finished with him, and then nobody could keep him alive. <laughs> And that's the attitude I think we should have, like Daniel facing the executioner. We can say, if I'm in God's path, if he's got a plan for me, then uh, this is going to be okay. I can trust him with that. And so with a grateful heart 
And with a confident demeanor, Daniel goes to the king. In verse 24, the Bible says, Daniel went in to see Arioch, whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he said to him, don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king, and I will tell the king the meaning of his dream. Arioch quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of the dream. The king said to, the, to Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, is this true? Can you tell me what my, dream was, what my dream was and what it means? Now, what happens next is a testament to Daniel's knowledge of God. Because Daniel doesn't say, sure, I can tell you the dream. What Daniel says is, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret, but there is a God a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. He's standing before the greatest king in the world, but he is not afraid to say, I can't, but God can. Do you ever stand there in, in some situation where maybe there's a little prompting that says to testify about God, your faith in God? And you're like, oh, I'm too shy. I think it's, it's important to note what Daniel's experience was. Daniel had knelt before the king of the universe, the sovereign of creation. And so he stood confidently before a king of this world. When we are humbled before God, then we can be confident before men. And, and he points to God, God, the revealer of secrets. This is a theme that keeps coming back over and over and over again in the book of, of Daniel. So we have to notice it. When Daniel says he's the revealer of secrets, we should pay attention and be like, what secrets is, is God wanting to reveal? And when you think about it, Nebuchadnezzar had a revelation from God. And he was confused. You've never been that way, have you? You read the Bible and you're like, what? <laughs> Have you ever had a revelation from God? You know this is a revelation from God and not understood what it means for you? Maybe you need a Daniel. <laughs> Maybe you need somebody that you can call up and say, hey, I, I need to know what God's will is here. I need to understand what this means for my life. Or maybe, maybe you also need something that Jesus promised. John 16, 13, Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Do you, do you need to understand God's revelation? See, he's a revealer of mysteries, and he's a teller of the future. And if that's the, the God that we serve, do you think that he wants to reveal the mysteries to you? I think he does, and he's promised the Holy Spirit to do that. And so, maybe instead of calling up Daniel, like Nebuchadnezzar ended up doing, what we should do is call up the Holy Spirit. We should say, Lord, please teach me. I'm not understanding this. And maybe spend a little bit more time digging. And like Daniel, pray. Maybe even ask your friends to pray. I need to understand this. Please help me. Um, ask God to, to give me wisdom here. And then dig a little bit and study a little bit. And the Holy Spirit will reveal secrets to you. Now, if you don't know the dream already, I'll give you a summary. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar dreams about this statue, 
It's a statue of a man made of four different metals. The head is made of gold, the chest of silver, the waist of brass, the legs of iron, and then there's these feet that are partly of iron and clay. And as he examines this image, he sees a meteor, an asteroid, I don't know what you call it, coming out of the, uh, through the air. It smashes uh, the, the feet of this, um, this image and, and just demolishes it into dust. And... Uh, and it's this vision, this image, uh, that Daniel interprets, and he, he gives some important um, understanding. He says, your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. He's trying to help him understand what's this mystery that God's given him. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler over all the inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. Now, notice that this is not flattery. Most people in the court of a king would flatter them. You are the greatest king by your power, by blah, 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 right? This is not Daniel. Daniel says, you are the greatest king in the earth because God made you so. You are this head of gold. He puts the emphasis where it should be. God sets up kings and God takes down kings because that's what the vision's about. The vision is about God creating the architecture, the, the framework for all of time from Nebuchadnezzar to the, the end of time until Jesus comes. And then he goes on and he says, after, you, after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take its place. After that kingdom was, has fallen, yet a third kingdom represented by bronze will uh, rule the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one, as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay, showing that this kingdom will be divided. Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of iron, but while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, others will be as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will, be, will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron and clay do not mix. During the reign of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all the kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its meaning is certain. A quick glance into history, and you all know this history, most of you anyway, um, a quick glance into history will, will tell you what these uh, different um, metals that take over are. Babylon had conquered much of the world, and uh, interestingly, Nebuchadnezzar had an alliance with the Medes, and he had married a Persian princess. Nebuchadnezzar had united the world. But when Nebuchadnezzar died, the Medes got with the Persians, and they started to systematically take over the world. And so by the time Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belteshazzar, was um, a co-regent there in, in Babylon, the Medes and the Persians had whittled away at the Babylonian Empire until they became the conquerors of the world. And the, the Medo-Persian Empire was bigger than Babylonian Empire. It's, it's stretched bigger than any other empire ever had. 
covered more of the world than anybody had ever thought possible. And then the Greeks came along under Alexander, and they swept the, the, all of the, the territories up, and their empire stretched from uh, Western Europe all the way to, to the Indian Ocean. But that didn't last very long, um, and uh, just a hundred and something years later, the Romans started to, to trample the earth and crush these other kingdoms until the, uh, the Roman Empire took over the world. But you also know that the Roman Empire doesn't last forever, and it breaks up into these European uh, kingdoms, um, that the, these little um, groups of, of uh, tribes that represent the majority of the Western Europe uh, that we know today. Now, the exciting part of this prophecy is that one where it says, in the days of these kings, in the days of the, the kings of the toes there, are we in the days of these kings? Um, I've been hearing um, off and on about um, this world event, like what's happening in Afghanistan, or that world event. I mean, back in the 80s, it was, it was Russia and the Cold War, you know, coming to an end and all this stuff. The, the, the wall falling down in, in, um, in Germany, right? Every world event, we've tried to like underscore, look, look, Jesus is coming soon. And I just want to say, brothers and sisters, we knew that all along. We don't need a world event to let us know Jesus is coming soon because the Bible has indicated that we are in the days of these kings. We're in the days of the divided Roman Empire, Western Europe divided. Jesus is coming soon. That is known. Now, it might be that Afghanistan plays a part in that, but you don't need to get all excited any more excited, I should say, because Jesus already said He's coming soon. Amen? There is going to be a day very soon when all of the human empires, all of the world nations will be overturned and God will set up His kingdom. Jesus will come and ultimately the new Jerusalem will come and will, will be set up so that God's kingdom fills the earth. When He heard this, King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshipped him. And he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burnt uh, sweet incense before him. The king said to Daniel, Truly your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what Daniel did in, in response to this worship. Um, my guess is that he recoiled and that this was not his, his plan. And then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as the chief over all his wise men. And Dan, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, um, his friends, Azariah, Hananiah, Mishael. Um, these are the Babylonian names. He, he appointed them to be in charge of all the affairs of the provinces of Babylon, while Daniel remained in the king's court. There's a fun bit of chronological strangeness going on here because it seems like we're just a few months into Daniel's training, the second year of, Bab uh, of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. But here at the end of Daniel chapter 2, at the end of this story, we find Daniel being elevated to the second in command in the kingdom and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sent off to the, to the different corners of the empire. And yet, hasn't Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't he need to, to do this like um, test thing from Daniel chapter 1? And uh, 
Right, so this has caused many Bible scholars to say, well, Daniel 2 verse 1 is wrong. This isn't the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. This is, this is at least a few years after their training had finished. Maybe it's the 12th year, and they just missed a one, you know, instead of, instead of uh, the second year, it should have been the 12th year. Well, that's one theory. Another theory is it is the second year, but it's, it's counted based on when the temple was destroyed. So this is the second year after the temple would be destroyed, which is 18 years after Nebuchadnezzar starts his reign, 18 years after Daniel began his training. And I'd like to suggest that neither of those ideas hold any water. We need to look at the text itself and believe the text. Daniel chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that this is the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar and that this is a young man who trusts in God, and God reveals mysteries to him. But just like Daniel chapter 1, verse 21, where we get this story of their training, and it kind of sweeps to the end that three years after they start their training, they got the test, and, and then it says, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus, 70 years later. And then it goes back in Daniel chapter 2 to the second year of, um, the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar, And at the end of Daniel chapter 2, it sweeps forward again as Nebuchadnezzar raises these young men up to be influential leaders in his nation. But you know, the chronology doesn't really matter so much. I mean, we could get lost in the weeds when we're talking about the details of this history. God's not interested in us figuring out every detail of Daniel's story. What he is interested in us figuring out are two big ideas. Number one, God is the Lord of kings, the, uh, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and He's the revealer of secrets. Not only can God solve your problems, but He's guaranteed to win the battles that set up these kingdoms and the, the world stuff, right? So when, when Afghanistan happens or when anything else has happened, 9-11, just go back in your history and think of all the big world events that got you worried. God wants you to know that He's the King of Kings, that He's the Lord of Lords, and that whatever machinations of politics that are here on earth, whatever is true about vaccines or face masks, right? <laughs> whatever is true about the stuff that really seems to drive our emotions, God is in charge, 